Hello, this is David Brim, and I'm the founder of Orlando Entrepreneurs. We are the hub for Orlando entrepreneurship, and our mission is to connect, cultivate, and celebrate our local entrepreneurs. We bring together our local entrepreneurial ecosystem to help impact our entrepreneurs, their companies, and our local economy. Learn more at orlandoentrepreneurs.org. Now over to Josh Wilson to get forward with our show. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Orlando Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh. I'm your host, and I go around Orlando having conversations with Orlando's finest entrepreneurs, business leaders, and those who are building some great things in your backyard. On today's show, we're going to have a conversation with the CEO of a very interesting co uh, company that I've never even thought of until we had a talk. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to welcome Mr. Harry Travis to the show. Harry, welcome to the show. Hi, Josh. Thanks a lot for the opportunity to be with you. Absolutely. So you're the CEO of a company called eTech RX. That's right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay, so who am I? I'm a pharmacist by training. Uh, went to pharmacy school at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy, practiced pharmacy for a little bit, then went back and got an MBA at the University of Virginia. And then that took my career kind of through the corporate world as opposed to back to practicing pharmacy with long stints at Baxter, Cardinal Health, and then a company called Accredo Health in Memphis, which was one of the very first specialty pharmacies. And we'll probably talk a little bit about what specialty pharmacy is. Uh, we were acquired by a big uh, prescription benefit management company called Medco. And after that, I got an opportunity to move to Orlando to run Aetna's large specialty pharmacy here in Orlando, and I've lived in Orlando for about 10 years. About two years ago, I saw the opportunity to essentially be part of a recapitalization of eTech RX, so I led the investment team that went in and recapitalized the company, and I've been running that company, this company, ever since. Awesome. So there's a, a few things that I, I kind of want to dig, dig into the, the story. You went to pharmacy school. You actually practiced that, but then you went back to get your master's in, in your right. MBA, right? That's right. Why did you do that as opposed to just sticking with the, the pharmacy? I guess I had an idea early on that I wanted to be more of a general manager than a practicing pharmacist. I actually got the idea during a summer job I had uh, between my fourth and fifth year of pharmacy school, I worked for the Upjohn Company. Now that's dating me because not a lot of people remember the Upjohn Company, but the Upjohn Company was a big pharmaceutical company. I had a summer internship there and I met a couple pharmacists there who had MBAs and they looked like they had really cool jobs. And I was a young guy and it just stuck with me. I said, okay, that looks like an interesting career path. I still use my pharmacy degree, pharmacy knowledge every day in the business that I'm in. I just use it in a different way. Got it. So when you meet someone and they're like, you know, what, what, what do you do for a living? Like, are there a bunch of like pharmacy jokes or, or titles that you guys say uh, when you're describing what you do? Well, I, I don't know so much about jokes as there is a pride in the profession because you typically see pharmacists or you know, in, in the old days referred to as druggists. But you see pharmacists rate, rated very highly on most trusted profession. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So as a group, I think we're, we're very proud of that, no doubt about it. Awesome, awesome. So your company, eTech RX, why don't you tell us a little bit about what that actually is? Yeah. We are developing an ingestible microchip. 
what has come to be known by the FDA as an ingestible, an ingestion event monitor. So it is actually a microchip on a small biocompatible piece of plastic, very, very small, one or two millimeters, that can be implanted in your medicine, okay, put inside your medicine, inside of a capsule that has your medicine in it. And when you swallow it, it powers up in your stomach and actually sends a low power radio signal out of your stomach to a reader that you're wearing that picks it up and then uses Bluetooth to get to an app on your cell phone. The whole purpose of this is to let your clinician, your pharmacist or your physician know that you've taken your medicine. So the heart of the technology is a very special microchip that we have designed that then powers up when it gets into your stomach and then it just passes with the rest of the things that pass when you pass the things you pass. Okay, So it does not dissolve, uh, it does not implant. It is ingestible, not digestible. Ah, okay. So let me let me make sure I understand this correctly. Uh, with your company, with the technology that you have, you take a, an existing you know set of pills and you put a microchip in there. Right. When it's ingested, when it when it goes into your body, then it turns on and it right. sends a signal to your phone or or a device. Right. 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 So, I mean, that seems like an incredible. Um, discovery. How did you, or how did the the company come up with that idea? Like, what what mm-hmm. initiated that? What problem were we solving? Right. Well, the problem we're solving is called the problem of medication adherence or medication non-adherence. In that, too many people are not taking their medicine when they should or how they should. So, if you're doing a good job of taking your medicine exactly the way you should, you are adherent to your medicine. Your prescription says take one a day and you are religiously taking one a day. You are a good patient and you're adherent. If you're not taking one a day, every other day, or one week on, one week off, you are non-adherent. So it is a well-known problem. In fact, it's a very big problem in healthcare, at known as the medication adherence problem or medication non-adherence problem. And there have been dozens and dozens of studies trying to estimate what is the cost of patients who don't take their medicine. So examples are someone who has a heart condition like atrial fibrillation. They don't take their blood thinners. They have a stroke. Someone who has high blood pressure. You don't take your blood pressure med. You have a stroke. Someone who is diabetic who doesn't take their diabetes medications. You end up with a diabetic foot ulcer and an amputation. So one one of the easiest ways to lower the total cost of healthcare in the United States is just to get everybody to take their medicine the way they should. So there are a lot of people now, a lot of technologies, a lot of companies really driving at that problem in different directions and we're, we're part of that. Yeah. So when, when you were working in specialty pharmacy, uh, you worked with a few companies, you went the corporate route, right? and you had uh, an acquisition. Like, what, what was your role when that acquisition happened, when you were in the corporation? Oh, okay. So take back to when I was working for a company in Memphis, Tennessee called Accredo Health. We were a publicly traded, relatively small company that was pioneering the practice of pharmacy that was aimed at dispensing 
really high cost medicine. So you're hearing all about biotech drugs today. And those really got started in the late 90s, turn of, turn of the century, the 2000s. You had more and more biotech drugs coming out, which really did not fit well in the retail pharmacy model. They were very expensive, they required a lot of insurance work, and a lot of patient training. So you had specialty pharmacies pop up that could use the power of FedEx or UPS Next Day Air and ship a couple thousand dollars worth of drug. These are very expensive drugs, so it was not uncommon to have a prescription for 30 days cost $2,000. Now it's $5,000 a day uh, shipped to these patients. We were acquired by Medco. One of, one of my roles was in the whole integration of the process, but even before that, I was on the team that essentially was on the courtship team. So we developed a relationship with Medco a year before the acquisition. We became one of their preferred pharmacies. They could see that we had skills that were very unique. They were more of a generalist prescription benefit management company and a classic mail order pharmacy where they were filling thousands of prescriptions a day with just kind of the pills and tablets that we call chronic meds. The, not to say that anything's easy, but they're the simpler medicines. We were dealing with the really complex stuff, and just like anything, they saw an opportunity to expand their portfolio in a high growth area that they didn't have the expertise in. So we taught them about it, they got to know us pretty well, and then eventually they made a move to acquire us. At a time in the market where there was a lot of that going on. There were a couple specialty pharmacies out there, people could see the trend, and the big guys were gobbling up the, the little entrepreneurial upstarts, and we were one of the first to go. Got it. So going from an entrepreneurial upstart, small specialty, to then moving into an acquisition, you know, you courted them and you... Right. What did you learn as an entrepreneur there, or what did you, what did you start to experience there that you think would be valuable for the entrepreneurs listening in to, to know? I think one of the rules that that we learned or one of the lessons that we learned is, is pretty typical, but it's, it's interesting to be in it, and that is companies acquire companies or investors invest in companies primarily for the people. Sure, there's an, there could be ideas, there could be patents, there could be market positions, but I re really think it boils down to are the people in the organization of genuine value to the acquiring or the investing organization. They, they invest or they acquire in teams. Because in Medco's case, they, they brought in all sorts of technology, they brought in all sorts of market power, but it was really the know-how mm. that we had. And that know-how resided in all of the people in the organization. It wasn't, we didn't have a patent on it, we didn't have any kind of exclusivity on it other than it was just the know-how around it. I, I would joke and say if you took the whole organization and boiled it down into a beaker and all you had left was the little ash at the bottom of the beaker, what, what did you have in a specialty pharmacy? You had a, a group of highly intelligent folks knit together by an IT system. It's a very intense information business. So that's important too, but it really just comes down to know-how in this particular business. Now, sure. you go to a different industry, you're going to have different assets you know, weighted differently. But in this business, it's all about the people and the knowledge. Got it. So before you came on to, uh, to become the CEO here, mm -hmm. what were you doing? What was the last yeah. job you had? Yeah. Before I became CEO of eTechRx, I was general manager of Aetna's 
specialty pharmacy and mail order pharmacy here in Orlando. So the specialty pharmacy is here in Orlando. Big operation, multi-billion dollar operation, uh, 100,000 square foot facility out by the airport on Sand Lake Road uh, that dispenses uh, literally uh, tens of millions of dollars worth of product a day out of that facility to patients all around the country who have Aetna insurance. Sure. So I ran that operation and we had two mail order pharmacies that handled the rest of the drugs, uh, the lower cost drugs. So we were a division of the larger Aetna organization that was headquartered up in Hartford, Connecticut. So what was the transition from Aetna to entrepreneur, you know, back into the game as a, you know. So I, I bet some of your listeners are familiar with the Lake Nona Impact Forum. So Lake Nona Impact Forum and Lake Nona is trying to establish itself and do, I think they're doing a pretty good job as a medical center, a medical city, a center for medical innovation with the VA hospital there, the Children's Hospital. Uh, University of Florida has uh, operations down there, and now they're getting a lot of smaller companies. And they have a, a forum once a year. Part of that forum was, and this is while I was still at Aetna, part of that forum was to highlight Florida entrepreneurs and medical devices. So the CEO of eTECT, which was the prior company, gave a presentation there when I and I was invited as guest. So I'm sitting in the audience and I'm watching this engineer talk about this ingestible pill. And I'm dealing with the problem of medication adherence in the pharmacy. So we had hundreds of transplant patients that we took care of, who we talked to almost weekly to make sure they were taking their medicine because transplant patients, real important for a transplant patient to take good care of that brand new liver or kidney or heart that you got, okay? And here was a guy showing me this microchip that we could put in the medicine and we would know whether somebody took their medicine. And I joke about it, I was like a little groupie at a rock concert. I jumped over the chair, a couple of rows of chairs and chased them off the stage. Said, well, wait a minute, get back here, I wanna, I wanna talk to you. And that's just started a, a relationship. I actually left that in a, to pursue an entrepreneurial opportunity in a different area with a private equity firm in New York City. We were going to acquire a couple of specialty pharmacies. So I got the bug to do that. And then Eric, who is now my senior VP for production and R&D, connected with me on LinkedIn and sent me a note on LinkedIn and said, hey, I see your profile's changed. What are you doing? I said, well, I'm a deal scout for this private equity firm in New York City. And he goes, well, we've got a deal for you. I'm like, what's that? And he goes, well, we're going bankrupt. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> and I'm like, what? So I quickly uh, jumped in the car and drove up to Gainesville, where the company is headquartered, and sat down with them. And they had essentially run out of gas with their current investors and did not realize, to some degree, I want to give everybody the credit that's deserved uh, in the organization. They had a lot of good investors, but they just didn't have enough gas in the tank to get it through the rather difficult FDA process. Uh, and they were at a stage, and the market was at a point where I think the, the capital markets were still kind of tight coming out of the recession. So it just was hard. Uh, so I, I could still see the idea was good and spent a couple days with them understanding that the technology was good. I had the time to talk to a couple experts and some patent attorneys, do some quick due diligence, and we realized the only way to save the company was to bring in angel investors who could make a decision fast. Now, we couldn't bring in an institutional investor. They would require 30, 60, 90 days worth of due diligence 
They literally had no cash. The assets were at a bankruptcy court, and the bidding was in two weeks. So we had to move real fast. So uh, I rounded up uh, two angel investors, two uh, high net worth individuals here in Orlando who know the specialty market really well, introduced them to the concept and said, I'll go in you know, kind of on sweat equity. You guys come in on the financing side. And uh, to their credit, they could see the vision. And we did the deal in record, record time. Uh, from start to finish, we had it all closed in less than 90 days. And what we did was we let the the old company go bankrupt, bought all the assets in the IP, all the patents, all the trademarks, that sort of thing, and then just recapitalized the new company and hung an RX at the end of it. So it was eTech. Now it's eTech RX. Rehired the entire team into the existing facility, just rewrote the lease, and never missed a beat in the process. So it was kind of like a, a controlled landing of a plane that was just about ready to run out of gas, yeah. hit the runway, refueled it, and took it back up. Uh, and that was in August of 16. And did you learn how to do that when you left Aetna? Did you learn how to do you know, these kind of deals as when you were the scout for the private equity group? I knew just enough to be dangerous. Yeah. Uh, but I also knew just enough to call the right people in to help with the deal structure, the attorneys. We use a law firm in Nashville who I knew before called Bassberry Sims, and this is literally a shout out to them. They're one of the best healthcare practices in the country, and Nashville is kind of the center of healthcare, uh, at least healthcare services. So they have a top flight deal team, a top flight bankruptcy team, and a top flight IP team. So we brought them in, and the investors here know the market, and so. Between, we just put the right team together to make it happen fast. And as a result, yeah, I know a lot more now than I did then. Sure. Okay, but at least I knew the right people to call. So you, you were a deal, a deal scout. Uh, tell, tell the audience, you know, um, what, a, what a deal scout is and uh, maybe how to connect with other deal scouts because, uh, you know, that could help them with their business. Right. So my role as deal scout for a private equity firm in New York City called CCMP was they brought me on and in a retainer role, not as a partner, not as an employee, as a 1099 consultant. But you know, we cut a deal, a contract that said they will fund me at some level for 24 months to go out and turn over rocks. And there's no guarantee that we're going to make a deal. Uh, but if you bring us a deal and it works, then you go in as the CEO. So it's, you know, you get to eat what you kill, yeah. <laughs> as they say. Uh, so it was a market that I understood, specialty pharmacy, and our plan was to acquire a couple specialty pharmacies and do what's called a roll-up, get two or three of them together and roll them up and then create some synergies and efficiencies and then flip it or develop a better version of a service model or something along those lines. And as I was doing that and we were looking at deals, as you would expect, some look good, some look bad. The market has certain swings to it. Uh, the market for specialty pharmacies, okay, that's the business we were looking at, not drug companies, but the pharmacies. The market for pharmacies is sensitive to the kind of drugs that get introduced. So a blockbuster drug gets introduced, every pharmacy gets to make a little more money because now they're distributing this billion dollar drug that comes along. And then if, though, if that pipeline dries up for a little bit, your sales curve goes down. So 
we hit a lull in the market as I was out there looking for deals at exactly the time that the guys at eTech pinged me on LinkedIn. And I just called the, guy, the guys at CCMP and said, hey, I got a better deal coming along. And this was all you know, kind of contemplated that there was nothing, nothing guaranteed one way or the other. There was no guarantee I was going to be with them forever. And there was no guarantee they were going to get me a job. So when I saw something pop up, these got, you know, financial investors, they're used to this. They say, okay, fine. You know, grow the business. We'll come back and buy you someday. So who knows what will happen. Sure. But, so for, for uh, you mentioned LinkedIn a few times, and yeah. I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn. Um, what was your title as, as when you were hunting for deals? working at the private equity group. So that way people in the audience, they can know how best to help deal hunters. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I'm trying to remember what my business card said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, it might have been uh, might have been associate or it might have been, uh, it might have just been consultant on their card because you're right that you typically don't see a business card with deal scout yeah, on it. Sure. Uh, but when you start talking to someone, then you understand, okay? So sometimes it'll be operating advisor, sometimes it'll be operating uh, co- uh, consultant, things like that. Uh, and it, it's generally a, a title that, or a position that's kind of behind the scenes that you don't see that often. And you, you kind of create it yourself. I mean, I went to a number of different private equity firms and said, this is my idea, but I need somebody to back me to my idea for buying a couple specialty pharmacies and rolling them up. And I said, I don't have the resource. I can't leave Aetna and fund this on my own. I got a mortgage to cover. I got a family to feed, that kind of thing. So if somebody wants to do this, I'm willing to take some risk and give up the security of Aetna and jump into this and we'll see what happens. And Two or three firms made me offers, and I settled on the uh, the firm CCMP in New York City, and still have good friends there. Awesome, awesome. What advice do you have for other deal scouts out there? Well, uh, work as hard as you can. Okay. <laughs> sure. LinkedIn. Uh, you talk about LinkedIn. It's all about the network. It's all about your network because you're you know if you're looking for a deal, typically. What you want is a deal that's not being advertised. Right, off market, right? Right, because if it's being advertised, then there's going to be bidding, and you're not going to get the best deal. You're not, as a buyer, you're not going to get the best price. You're trying to find someone who's thinking about it, and you can convince them to talk to your investors, and they might not get the top dollar, but maybe it's a better fit strategically, long term. So it is all. I think it is all about the network. Uh, and it's also very much about being a good listener when you're you're talking to people to determine whether or not they're interested in selling. Most people are not, and it's really getting them comfortable with okay, there are people out there who are willing to invest a lot in your kind of business. So think about it a little more. Let me learn more about your business. Let me talk to you about who the investors are and how this happens. Got it. So how do you approach a company to, to invest in? Because you, you approach this company, started having some conversations, you actually saw them uh, give a demonstration. How do you approach a company 
on behalf of a private equity group. Yeah, well, t two different situations because the the ETEC RX situation, they came to me saying we we need help. We need so help. So they were looking for outsiders to come in and and buy. So that was that was a little easier. It was mm -hmm. it had its own challenges due to the nature of the deal. The reverse of that when you're in a deal scout role and you're just knocking on doors and trying to get to people uh, and find out what's going on, you really need to have a long-term perspective and it, it's the classic kind of funnel problem. The more opportunities I can put in the top of the funnel, one of them will come out the bottom. Okay, so you have to, it's a marathon, you have to maintain a high energy level to say, okay, maybe it's one out of 40 is going to really be interested here. And for all sorts of good reasons, the other 39 don't want to sell. And okay, don't beat your head against the wall trying to get them to sell. You've got to, but at least leave on good terms. And as you talk and talk and you build that network, then you start getting calls from somebody who you talked to four weeks ago or four months ago saying, well, I'm not ready, but have you talked to so-and-so? Because I think my buddy on the other side of the country is ready. Oh, I didn't know that. And off you go. Yeah. So you found this company. Mm -hmm. It was going through, it was running out of gas, like you said. Right. It was about to land. You bought it out of bankruptcy. Right. And you, you said that this is called recapitalization, mm -hmm. right? Um, did you know going into that that you would be the CEO? I did. Okay. I did. That was, you know, that was part of, in the early scoping it out, uh, I said, okay, you know, I met the team in Gainesville and said, I think I can bring uh, the right kind of money in. And of course, I'm talking, you're, you're working both sides of it because I'm talking to the investors saying, you guys invest, I'm the guy that's going to run it, okay? I'm talking to the team that I'm thinking I, we can rescue this and saying, okay, I think I can bring the money in here, but I'm going to be the guy running it. So we need to realign titles and that sort of thing. And Actually, it worked out fine. Uh, the, the team was perfectly, you know, had a very rational approach, like, okay, what's our alternative? <laughs> yeah. When the alternative really was looking for another job, and the whole idea essentially died. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they're a very committed team. I'm real proud of them. And so, you know, it's a very small team. We have only nine full-time employees in the company. So we have a number of consultants to, to support it. Sure. But there's still hope for a company that has a great idea, maybe some IP, maybe some a, a great team. There's still hope um, to continue moving forward when things get dark, right? When when that runway, that two-week runway is going through and bankruptcy court's coming and, you know, like fear, I'm sure, was like capturing these people. But there was still hope. And the, the way that you guys helped save this company is uh, probably happens a lot that we just don't see. Is that oh, right? I, I, I bet you're right. I'm sure, I'm sure you're right. And give them credit too. They didn't give up. They kept calling. They were, yeah. you know, pinging every net node on their network. Yeah. And so they were playing the funnel game too. Okay. And Harry just happened to drop through the of the the hundred people on Eric's list that he talked to. I was the one that felt, you know, came through the tunnel and said, Yeah, I can make it happen. And so he didn't give up. Uh, he, he kept working it, and he landed on me. So, yeah, you, you keep going until you can't go any longer, and everybody's got to decide when that point is, no doubt about it. So what advice do you have for 
um, obviously one is keep going, but for a company that has a really great idea, has some intellectual property, has, has all the tools ready, but maybe they need some help from another CEO or some capital, like what, what's that one piece of advice that you would have for, for a company that's really struggling right now? Plan for the worst and hope for the best. <laughs> there you uh, go. You know, it's not a bad r- rule to live by. You know, watch every dime in, in your organization. Uh, you know, cash is, cash is king. Uh, I've had other people say, you know, the most important rule is don't run out of cash. Okay, particularly if you're a startup or, yeah. or you're in the early stages where you're not cash flow positive. Yeah. So you came onto the company in 2016. Right. Right. So what has advanced since you came on board? And I know that this is a real slow process working right. with FDA and, right. and moving pharmaceutical stuff. So, that, so that's important. We are a medical device company. We are regulated by the FDA. Okay, so you know, for the listeners, the FDA regulates the manufacture of medical devices and the manufacture of drugs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, boards of pharmacy, state boards of pharmacy, regulate the practice of pharmacy. So what you see in a drugstore, the way the drugs are handled, the way it's labeled, uh, the way it's billed and managed, that is managed by the board of pharmacy. But the products themselves and how they're manufactured is managed by the FDA. And we are what is called a class two medical device. Uh, Medical devices come in three classes. Class one medical device is something really simple like an ACE bandage or a blood pressure cuff or a stethoscope. It is not in any way life-sustaining in any form or shape and really doesn't have any therapeutic claims to it that this is going to do something good for you. Okay, That's what the class one medical device is. On the other hand, a class three medical device is something that is critical to life support, so a pacemaker. Okay a uh, defibrillator would be class three medical devices. And then there's this big middle ground called class two medical devices that generally have a claim that they can diagnose something or they can treat something, uh, but it is the, the risk level is a little lower. So we're, even though it looks like we are a drug, we're a device. So we're, the, the drug itself, picture a capsule that, like any medicine capsule, Picture an empty capsule, and, on, and those are hard gelatin capsules. We've all had them in our hands, maybe not empty ones, but everyone's had a capsule of Advil or Tylenol or something in their hand. So the, if you picture that thing empty, on the inside wall of the capsule, imagine a very thin film of plastic, thinner than saran wrap, that has a microchip on it. And that's where our device sits. So that you asked the question, where, where are we today from where we were on August 16? In 16, it was early stage clinicals. We were just having the first volunteers swallow capsules. We were just testing. Uh, the safety had been pretty much proven, but performance hadn't been proven. So from there to now, we have proven performance. We've got a lot more clinical data and we are at the FDA. So we filed our application, and for medical devices, when you file a medical device and everything's an acronym at the FDA, uh, medical device application is called a 510K, and that refers to paragraph K, section 510 of 
some Food and Drug Act somewhere. I should know, I have a better answer, but everybody talks about their 510K application. So any medical device that needs to get cleared by the FDA have, fills out a 510K application, and it can take anywhere from, in the fastest review, it might take four or five months. Longest review, it could go 18 months. Uh, and so we are into that process now, and we're feeling good about it, and we're pretty confident that we will get cleared. The FDA doesn't approve medical devices. There's a whole nomenclature around FDA lingo. They approve drugs, but they clear medical devices. So you get a clearance to market your device. Uh, when you get that letter from the FDA, that's a, a day for celebration. Uh, so from pretty much the lab is where we were in 16, to clinicals and FDA, serious FDA activities where we are right now, and maybe six months away from commercialization, from wow. real, you know, being able to legitimately go to pharmacies and pharmaceutical manufacturers and now sell a product that has been cleared. So you said when, when this gets cleared, that's, that's reason for celebration. That's right. How do you feel you and your team will celebrate when that gets cleared by the <laughs> FDA? Maybe sleep a little better, yeah. <laughs> okay? Get a good night's sleep. Sure. Uh, take a, you know, take a, a, a vacation that's a, a little more relaxing, no doubt about it. Sure. Uh, and uh, share it with all of the people who have supported the company. There have been a lot of people who, not just the three investors, but a lot of industry support, a lot of technology partners who have helped the company along the way, no doubt about it. So then when you guys wake up from, you know, taking mm -hmm. a good nap mm -hmm. and, and taking a deep breath of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, excitement, then what? Because then you have to go to right. commercialization. So what's, right. the, what's the next stage uh, of um, a company that has to get cleared or approved by the FDA? What's next after that? Uh, you know, generally it's the same question that you ask any company. It's like, who's going to buy it? Yeah, who pays who's, for this, who's, right? Who's going to buy it and who's going to pay for it? Sure. And in... In the world of medication adherence, which is, okay, what problem are you solving? Well, we're, we're going to solve the problem of medication adherence. In that world, there can be a number of different parties, depending on the therapeutic situation, who are interested in the value uh, of medication adherence. Okay, So, real simply, a pharmaceutical manufacturer is going to be interested in anything that can help the patients that are taking its drug take, uh, take them as they should, which ultimately leads to increased sales. Okay, so if you take your medicine as you should, you're going to be healthier, you're going to live longer, and you're going to take more of the medicine. That's to the pharmaceutical manufacturer's benefit. To the insurance company, there's a benefit there. On a lot of these cases, like I talked earlier, the insurance company doesn't want somebody to have a hospital readmission because they didn't take their meds, or a bad event, or something along, or God forbid, die. So there is a value there for an insurance company to say, yeah, we will pay extra if the technology can prove itself. And right down to the patient. So they're in the longer term, as we get the technology out and we get it more refined, uh, and get to a cost point that everybody's comfortable with, there clearly are situations where all of us may have a loved one that's having a hard time taking their medicine. You know, one of the number one reasons why a senior person ends up 
in a facility, a nursing home facility or a nursing care facility, one of the number one reasons is they can't manage their meds. Mm. They keep forgetting to take their meds. So anything that can help uh, grandma, grandpa take their meds can lower costs because they can continue to live independently. Uh, so our job is to find the niches, the, ther the, case, the use cases as we say. Is it transplant? Is it cardiology? Uh, is it HIV? Real important for people who have HIV to uh, adhere to their medication. So which one of those and who are the interested parties? Is it an insurance company? Is it, a, is it a pharmaceutical manufacturer? Is it a family member? Is it a physician? Who, when physicians are now contracting for population health management. So physicians are at risk for outcomes on their po patient population. So they're interested. And physician groups or hospital systems would be willing to pay for this. Got it. So the, the actual drug of choice needs to be very thought through because this wouldn't work for like a, an aspirin or something a low cost. This has to be right. something that has a high cost and a high reward if the patient stays compliant right. to right. it. Right, That's exactly right. We talk about high cost or high impact. High impact. That it has, you know, if you don't take it, there's going to be a bad impact. It's going to be really bad and it's going to be soon. Yeah. Okay? You don't take your transplant meds. You're going to see something bad happen soon. So how do you guys go through, and th this is really good for my entrepreneurs out there who are trying to find their fit in the marketplace, right? Mm -hmm. Find the right product, find the right person who's going to buy it or use it, and then who pays for it, right? right? So how are you guys going or taking the approach of how do you find out which drug this would be a good fit for? Right. How do you guys go about doing that research? One, one rule that we have to apply inside the company is to constantly remind ourselves that we don't know it all. So we are blessed in that we have investors and a couple other people in the company who are you know, very well, very deeply experienced in the pharmacy market and especially pharmacy market. So you can run into the, you know, the challenge or the risk of, okay, we got it all figured out. Uh, and we have to constantly remind ourselves, no, listen, ask lots of questions as we're presenting the technology to lots of people, and I think this is true of any, any business. You know, the answers are generally outside the company, not inside the company. The, the answers are generally with the customer, not inside the company. Although there is a little bit of kind of the Steve Jobs side of this where, you know, his famous quotes, and I'm not going to get them right, but he's famous, you know, the customer doesn't know what they want. We know what they want. We are going to design elegant, great products, and away we go. There's a little bit of that here because there is not a model out there. There aren't thousands of patients out there swallowing microchips today, okay? So we are coming to the market with something very innovative, very different, and we need to find the innovators in the market, the risk takers in the market, the early adopters in the market. That's really where we have to go, to find the people who are the early adopters who can kind of see the vision. Maybe they can't see all of it, but they're willing to say, well, I want to be on the cutting edge. It's, that's our mission in our institution. We want to be kind of at the forefront of digital medicine. We want to be known for that. Is it Cleveland Clinic? Is it Mayo Clinic? Is it UPMC? You know, is it Florida Hospital? Who, who is it who really wants to stake a claim out there? And we could be a good partner for them. Got it. 
So after celebration, then you then you kind of find the right product fit, mm -hmm. and then you start going to actually have someone pay for this. Right. So how do you approach a big company, right? So for all the entrepreneurs out there who are selling into, you know, large corporations or, or healthcare companies or like these big insurance companies, how do you sell into a, a company like that or create a partnership with with Aetna or yeah. United Health? Yeah, I think the the best way to do it is to show them, uh, in at least in our situation, our approach is to show them real-world examples of it, of it working, small use case examples where we've worked with either maybe a small clinic, uh, a small group of physicians, a research institution that we've got funded any number of ways. And we can show them that, okay, we've got a positive, successful use case in maybe small scale, and all we need is your help, big company, to scale this thing up. Uh, let's face it, big companies are hard to work through, they're very bureaucratic, they generally are risk averse. So you, you do have to come to them with a well thought out example of success. Okay, this is, these are 50 patients and this is what we did and these are the savings. Now multiply that by a thousand, which is how many patients you have and you can see what it, what it really means, no doubt about it. Got it. So putting together some case studies right. and then building a case, essentially, for why they should invest with you guys. Right. And you know, there's something to be said for having the right salespeople, too, who know how to get into large organizations. So there's plenty of good salespeople out there who either have the connections or know the right entry points into Fortress Blue Cross Blue Shield or Fortress United. Sure. Absolutely. What, what about this job, being a CEO, that you love the most? Like, because, you know, 2016, you came on as a CEO from, from Deal Scout to CEO. Mm -hmm. Like, and this came from corporate world to Deal Scout to CEO. Like, what is your favorite part about being that? Seeing the team succeed when we hit milestones. Yeah. That, that's really the best part of it, no doubt about it. Uh, because it very much is, is a team effort. This is, this is not a, a band of individuals doing kind of individual work. Everything is highly knit together between R&D, production, quality, regulatory. It's just the nature of this business. It, is, it depends on a team. It depends on communication so that every success that we've had is due to the whole team coming together and that's probably the most rewarding part of it that's watching awesome. that happen awesome awesome what question should I have asked you that I totally missed the mark on and I didn't ask you how does it work how does this thing work you remember the potato experiment in high school where, where, where you put the electrode things yeah, on it yeah, right, so you, explain you, that to us okay the potato experiment that we all ran in high school where you take an anode and a cathode you take a positively charged and a negatively charged metal and you stick it in a potato or you could stick it in a piece of fruit and all you need is essentially an ionic medium where there's free electrons, some kind of weak acid or just an ionic medium and they will migrate to one, one of the anodes and you can essentially see, see electric, electron flow, you can see electricity on a voltmeter so you can stick an anode and a cathode into a potato and you can either light a light bulb, uh, a low wattage light bulb, or you can see the voltmeter turn. And that's essentially the principle of this product. You take a microchip and you put on a, a very thin piece of 
biocompatible plastic, a little bit of magnesium and a little bit of silver chloride, the anode and the cathode. And when it hits your stomach acid, that completes the circuit. And through the miracle of today's microchips, the microchips today are one, very, very powerful, we know that, okay? But they're also very energy efficient. You only need microvolts to power these things for what we need it to power. So, the, you know, the secret, our secret sauce is we figured out how to program a microchip to use a very, very, very small amount of voltage to generate a very specific but very weak radio signal for about 20 minutes. So you become your own FM radio station for about 20 minutes, broadcasting about one meter off your body after you swallow your pill. Wow. And then it connects in with the person's phone. Right. Well, it connects in with the device between you and the phone. So we we call it a reader. Right now, the reader looks like a, a pendant that you would hang around your neck. It's about the size of a stack of business cards. But that form factor can change. It doesn't need to touch your body. It just needs to be within about one meter of your body. So that receives the signal which is very specific, so a real specific antenna in there. But then it converts it into a Bluetooth signal that runs it to the app on your phone. This is really fascinating. Where do you think the future of this will go? Well, I think that there will be a lot of different medicines and a lot of different clinical situations that will benefit from this type of technology. It could be the situations we talked about, critical medications or real expensive medications. It could be opioids or where diversion is a problem, where you really want to know the patient has taken their medication, something like that. could be in research, where you're researching whether a drug versus a placebo is working, and you need to know that the patients who were on the drug and the placebo actually took the medicine exactly the way they were supposed to because your whole data set depends on that. Sure. Wow. Um, why Orlando, right? Because you, you, you moved here about 10 mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. Why did you stay here? Because you, you own, you know, you're CEO of a business mm-hmm. in Gainesville, but like why, what keeps you here? Well, I think Central Florida is just a great place to live, period. No, no doubt about it. We've, we've loved it here for the last 10 years. Uh, Gainesville, the company's in Gainesville because it was a group of PhDs from UF who uh, got their degrees at UF but then formed their own little bioengineering company that was an incubator for all sorts of ideas and this is one of the ones that came out of it. So we were literally housed on the UF campus in an incubator building that they have up there. We're not a typical incubator company because it's not a tech transfer but They like our kind of companies in the building with other entrepreneurs and other startups. So it's only a two-hour drive for me. A third of my time, I go up to Gainesville and spend a couple nights. A third of my time, I'm working out of my home in Orlando. And a third of the time, I'm on the road. Um, And I joke about it. As we all know, Orlando has a great flight, direct flights to every city in the country. It's one of the beauties of living here. Everybody wants to come to Disney. Yeah. But the downside is every flight has a screaming kid on it. But that's the price you pay, right? That's the price you pay, yeah. So um, where could people go to learn more about your business, about you, and about what you're working on? You can find me on LinkedIn. 
so Harry Travis, there's only one Harry Travis on LinkedIn, so you can find, that's probably the easiest way to get to me personally, or on our website, which is etectrx.com, E-T-E-C-T-R-X.com, and we've got a contact page there. Awesome. Awesome. Any last words you want to say to the entrepreneurs before we conclude this podcast interview? Anything that's like burning your heart that you want to share with them? I, I you know, the obvious uh, models apply. You know, don't give up. If you believe in your idea, don't give up. There's somebody out there who will see that spark and will invest in you uh, if you keep driving on it. No doubt about it. Awesome. Yeah, that's so good. Don't give up your there's a book, Three Feet from Gold, right? Like, oh, yeah, right. It's, it's, you're so close. So, yeah, don't give up, man. What a, what a great word, Harry. This is so awesome. Um, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your, your story and this incredible technology that you actually you know, ingest. You put it in your mouth, and, and, it, and it helps you uh, with you know, compliance and, and medication. So thank you for sharing that with us. This is so exciting. We're, we're so thrilled to see something like this is uh, being brought through Orlando. So thank you. It was my pleasure. I enjoy the show. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, listening into the show, I, I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope this was educational. If, uh, if you want to connect with Harry, if you've got an idea for him or, or some connections, you could go to the show notes and we'll have his LinkedIn and his website and his contact information so you could connect directly to Harry. And uh, I, I appreciate you guys listening in. Uh, We'll talk to you all on the next episode, and we hope you keep on building incredible businesses. All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening in on today's episode. If you would like to be a guest on the show or start a conversation with me, Josh, your host, send me an email to josh at orlandoentrepreneurs.org. You can also find out more information on Orlando's entrepreneurial ecosystem, discover resources to help you start and grow your business, and subscribe to future shows by visiting www.orlandoentrepreneurs.org.